0: G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number tp slash 01005. is
1: coming in gold and a world
0: record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend.
2: 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's Record! <laughs> Fall in test cricket in England for Shane Warne, And he's done it. He started
1: off with the most beautiful delivery. Yeah! Australia
0: have done it. Yeah! Australia is back on the biggest stage.
1: Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund.
0: the show as always we're here for our great friends at tobin brothers funerals celebrating lives well today we're joined by an australian motorsport great larry perkins is a legend of bathurst who raced everything from formula one to formula ford and the 24 hours of le mans as well he's a member of the order of australia sits very comfortably in the supercars hall of fame and he's one of the great characters of the sport larry welcome thanks so much for joining us
2: yeah good morning yeah no problem
0: now, Lightning Larry or Larric and Larry? There are a couple of, uh, you were fast, <laughs> but you're also known for your humour. It's hard to know what one best suits.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I probably didn't make my mark on humour because it always had a bit of an edge to it. Um, but um, yeah, look, uh, I don't mind. It's, uh, w- that's what others call me, not what my mum used to call me. So I didn't <laughs> worry. <laughs> <It doesn't matter. laughs> where do
0: we Where do we find you at the moment, Larry?
2: Well, I'm up on the uh, family farm that uh, that I uh, bought off the family twenty years ago, twenty one years ago, uh, where my uh, dad was born in 1920, yeah uh, where the grandpa came back from World War One in 1919, and started chopping down the Mallee trees to grow crops. So. We've had it now, uh, it's 101 years since, um, continuous in the family and, uh, I love it up here. It's peaceful and, uh, no one's got any viruses.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's important disclaimer at the moment, isn't it? Now this is Cow Angie we speak of, isn't it? Between Oyun and the, and the border of South
2: Australia? That's correct. Uh, on the Manly Highway and, uh, We're about 15 k's south of the township of Cowangie. And, uh, um, yeah, we've got 1,500 acres here. And, uh, yeah, we uh, happily farm and make uh, grain mostly, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay, plenty to keep you busy. I like Cowangie, though, Larry, because, you know, we've got the big banana, we've got the big pineapple and various other (laughs) landmarks. Now, there's a sign on the way into town... That states very proudly that this is the hometown of Larry Perkins. That, that's a terrific legacy to have.
2: Well, yeah. Uh, you, know, I, I, you mentioned earlier the uh, Hall of Fame and the AM, uh, uh, st- AWAM or whatever it is, and all that. <laughs> Well, I'm very proud of the fact that the locals many years ago wanted to put that sign up and I'm sort of delighted that they saw fit to do that and uh, just out of ordinary, um, I, suppose, I suppose it was pride of, uh, that I was one of them and, uh, and still am. So, yeah, I'm... I'm pretty stoked about that.
0: It's pretty awesome that you're back there, i got to say. I mean, you've got such a great history, not just you, but the generations, I guess, of the Perkins family. And Speaking of nicknames, the Cow Angie Kid was used for a bit too, wasn't it? It was,
2: actually, and uh, that started way back in the beginning. Formula V was my beginning, which was the lowest form of mechanical activity you can have on a racetrack, and that was in 1969. And uh, a, a, a mate wanted to paint my white helmet after a couple of races, and he gave it back to me and he had kel Kid on the back (laughs) with an Alma-Fudd type bloke with a couple of guns and I thought it looked pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I reckon. Now, your father was a rally legend, needs no introduction, Eddie Perkins. So, growing up, Larry, racing and cars and engines, I mean, do they go back as far as you can remember? I mean, because it's in the blood.
2: Well, yes. Everything i ever learned i learned from my dad who uh, did his time in the Air Force and uh, as a civil mechanic before the Air Force in 1940. And, uh, uh, yeah, I enjoyed uh um any mechanical was great but um I left school very uh, at fourteen and went uh, I was used to drive tractors at night and I was a I'm a windmill mechanic by I suppose training and used to you know climb up and down windmills and stuff like that and um but I got sick of that and uh, I wanted to go car racing. Always wanted to go car racing just we'd been terrorizing the roads around Caringey for some years, which the neighbours would testify and frown on, but um, yeah, I wanted to go racing.
0: So Larry, set the scene for us. I want to ask you this, because you're growing up in the 50s and 60s, and you're right out there in remote country Victoria. Honestly, at what age did you get behind the wheel of a a motor vehicle on the farm? Oh, I know, I was
2: still going to school. Um, Dad bought, I've got three brothers, two up and one down, and a sister, and uh, Dad uh, bought uh, an A-model Ford off a neighbour, uh, we knew it was there, and we coerced him in the bind at 20 bucks, and that was around about 1960, so I suppose I was 10, yeah. Uh, and um, we used to have to share the drive uh, of this A-model Ford, and we tuned her up a bit, and uh, you, you know, the, 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 the thing you did up on a farm for recreation on the weekend, you... You had to eliminate uh, the pests, the vermin, which is basically wild dogs, kangaroos and stuff like that, rabbits. So you'd... Uh, and you had to have good skill behind the wheel to chase these things down, you know. We used to... not the gun. Uh, you sometimes missed a few things. So, yeah, you had, to, you had to be good at everything.
0: And you mentioned the siblings, Larry. So you had three brothers to share the wheel with. I mean, a diplomacy was needed here. And I imagine you, you had to do a good job or you get turfed out of the seat, I'd imagine. You said
2: it absolutely Especially if you missed the gear or crunched the gears or yeah, did something uh, like f- fine wrong like that, you're hauled out of the seat. My go you've messed that up, and so on. But but it meant uh, you know you had to you had to give everyone no reason to pull you out of the seat, and then you had to be mechanically sympathetic because you know, a model Ford stuff was getting old then, and if you you know you didn't want to have to walk home because that could have been you know, many miles.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you touched on that because it wasn't just all about the driving, was it? You developed a real passion, and on the back of that, a knowledge for the mechanical side of it all, didn't you?
2: Well, when you're on the farm, uh, and yeah, you, know, you don't don't have a bunnings anywhere and so on. Anything you ever wanted as a a kid, you had to make. And, you know, I suppose life revolved around making, you know, knives out of old files and trying to make uh, uh, rifles. You know, we spent a lot of time making, uh, um, uh, 22 machine guns and things that are just taboo now. You're not allowed to do that. But, um, you know, I'm happy to say everyone I knew from uh, now 60 years, you know, none of them turned into mass murderers and uh, just <laughs> developed skills, yeah. And
0: So looking back on it all now after the racing career in the fullness of time and at the, the ripe uh, old age of 71 years young, Larry, looking back on it, did you feel or do you feel that mechanical knowledge almost gave you an advantage during your racing career?
2: Well, I'm convinced it did because you know I, I knew what I wanted to do and I used to look at the other drivers and you know, very few of them had mechanical uh, knowledge and I couldn't believe they would try and adjust their car and uh, make it go faster. And, and especially when I got to Europe because the gap, from uh, mechanics to, to driver was much wider and uh, you know I'm pretty proud of the fact that uh, I got right into that Formula 1 scene but a lot of it was to do with I knew what I did, was doing mechanically
0: we'll get to Formula 1 in a moment but you mentioned Formula V early on Larry so who was the first person who saw something in you if you like who was it that gave you your first crack at the racing scene am, am I right in saying it was Harry Firth
2: no that's wrong uh, I mean the first one I saw it was sure clear was me yeah but, um, <laughs> I, I uh, saved my money. Now, uh, when I was 18, I was able to buy a Formula V and a tow car, which was a, a 56 Volkswagen, and uh, that uh, took all my money. But uh, I wanted to go racing, and uh, the first couple of races at Malala, uh, which was our closest racetrack, about 200, maybe 200 k's away, um, it, was, it was more difficult than I thought, you know, uh, initially. And, but once I mastered... Uh, a couple of you know, simple things, and uh, I started winning races, and I didn't get a break. My first break came from the uh, Bibb Stillwell uh, organization, which was a, a Ford dealer at the time, the biggest Ford dealer in Australia, I think, and uh, their um, um, race manager, A. Hey, Graham Ritter, uh, he, he approached me and said, would I like to drive a second Formula Ford of this next year? And that was in 1971, uh, or, and I started driving uh, half of 1970. Uh, for bib stool so he gave me my first break uh by graham ritter who saw my various uh, potential and um sort of the rest is history
0: geez i like that answer about you know who's the first person who saw something in you and you said yourself because uh, uh, it can't go anywhere without that can it
2: <laughs> well that's what i've trying to instill into my own kids and uh, grandkids now you if you haven't got belief in yourself Whatever you do, whether it be some, some task, and if you don't believe you can do it the best in the world, you, you're missing out on something. You've got to have a great imagination and great belief. And i to this day, still got all of that. I take on many tasks today. Much, uh, I'm starting to think that maybe I am taking on too many tasks. you still got to do that. Without that drive, you, you, I say you've got nothing.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now you mentioned Bib Stilwell and Ford, of course. I've got Harry Firth's Holden dealer team scribbled down here where you were recruited as a mechanic and a driver. Was that, would that have been around 1970 or thereabouts?
2: Yeah, no, 1972. Uh, I, I raced for, for Bib Stilwell in 19... 19- the the end of nine uh, uh, started in mid seventy and finished the season seventy one with Bib yep. and I was a tradesman's assistant to the electrician there and did a lot of work there and then won the championship and uh, didn't have enough money to go overseas so Harry first uh, offered me a job as a mechanic flash drive every now and again. Uh, I thought, that's all right, and I was getting paid, uh, so I had a wage, and I needed to save money. And, and another good mate of mine, uh, the, the late Gary Campbell from Sydney, he had a Formula 2 car, and he uh, I met him in Formula Vs, and he knew that uh, uh, maybe I had better uh, talent than himself, and he offered me to do the whole series in Formula 2 races And in that year, 1972, and I won, uh, uh, come second in my first race, and won then every other race. So uh, that give me the title and more experience and then uh, Harry first gave me the cash and some further experience and then I was off to Europe.
0: I'm glad you mentioned uh, Europe because we're going to get to that next You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family owned business since 1934 As promised, Larry Perkins moves to Europe next to chase his racing dream
1: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives...
0: company on this is your sporting life made possible by tobin brothers funerals celebrating lives with six-time bathurst winner larry perkins so larry you won the taa formula four driver to europe series in uh, 71 the australian formula two championship as you said in 72 and it set the scene for a big move to europe but how did it actually come about when it got to the nitty-gritty
2: Well, the Nitty Gritty was a world final was announced for Formula Fords and there was over 160 entries from every country in the world that had Formula Ford. And we all assembled at uh, Brands Hatch for a race in late 72, might have been December 72. And uh, I'll I'll never forget that particular race because after the first practice session and there was two other Australians in in it, uh, just private blokes, you know, who were racers in Australia. And after the first practice session, uh, you know, I picked up the practice time to see you know, whether I was fastest or not, because I'd always been fastest. And I had to go back, scroll through five pages of times to get... I was 88th I was fastest out of 160, and the other two guys were 90th and 100th. And I, it was the greatest shock of my life. And the next practice session, which was the final one, though, I advanced up to equal third, where the other two guys stayed back there where they were and that uh, uh, that's when that belief in yourself comes to it. Yeah. Where I thought I was on the limit, uh, initially I was nowhere near it and I had to dig a lot deeper and uh, yeah, did well in that I finished uh fifth in that world final and the next race the next weekend after was another Formula Ford race and I put it on the front row of the grid and um come uh, i think i come third i was leading but i punted the other bloke off and wouldn't get on the road so <laughs> lost a couple of spots so yeah uh, everything always keeps honing back the belief in yourself
0: yeah and i'm glad you mentioned the word shock because i've got it written down here i was going to ask you how much of a shock it was not just i guess the standard or the difference in the in the racing but culturally as well when you got over there as a relatively young man at this point
2: well, culturally, I uh, I know uh, they couldn't. A lot of the locals uh, there was also culturally shocked by seeing me <laughs> turn up. Uh, you know, uh, I carried my tools. Uh, my spare, my tools were in a shoebox, and because uh, I still worked on the yeah, you know, drivers over there didn't work on their own stuff, and I'd work on how I didn't yeah you know, work on my own stuff.
0: A novelty. And
2: uh, yeah, and I and I had a truck. I bought a truck early on. I saw a cheap truck yet, you know, like. Uh, with a you know a, a van on the back probably and uh and I lived in the truck, and I just wanted to go racing, and uh, uh, that that that's when I got into Formula Three. After those, uh, I was offered a free Formula Three car based on the two Formula Ford races I did, yep. and um, you know I went Formula Three racing in Europe.
0: And you would go on to win the nineteen seventy five championship in Formula Three as well. But was Formula One always the goal? I mean, was that the motivation to get there, and how real? was the dream was it something you could hang on to or did it feel larry like it was a long way away
2: no that that was always the dream yep. and when from the a model four days was always a dream and uh I, I say uh when we were young uh we might go into the very local newsagent me and my mates you know and and i say uh, they'd flick through the Playboy magazines and I'd be reading the motorsport magazines, and then I'd then we'd swap. But I uh, I wanted to go Formula One racing. I wanted fame and riches and so on, and the only way I could say it was Formula One, and that was my unbelievable passion. And, uh, you know, I I watched some uh, of my heroes in races in the the mid-'60s, Jimmy Clark and Joachim Winton, Graham Hill, and... I just thought that was a fantastic. That was going to be my life.
0: And you got there. I mean, not many Aussies have got a Formula 1 seat over the years. You started in entirety 11 races across the 74, 76 and 77 seasons. Did it live up to expectations, Larry, the fame and the fortune? And what are your memories? Are they really vivid for you in terms of your, your years spent at that, um, at that class?
2: Absolutely vivid. I mean, I got into the Formula 1. Based purely on my, um, you know, owners wanted owners of Formula One cars wanted people who could win races, and uh, uh, so I got selected. I was rapt about that, and uh, my second race I came eighth in the Belgium Grand Prix, and uh, uh, you know, but then I had um, shocking. The team went broke, and uh, my next eight races were DNFs, and the the engine blew up and things like that. So uh, it was just a disaster, but. I've got, you know, I, I spent time on the, you know, I was in the Monza Grand Prix in uh, 76, I think I was uh, 12th on the grid. I split the two work lotuses and I was just a private privateer running a Formula One car with two apprentice mechanics. Uh, uh, you know, the, it was shattering. The rest of the world couldn't believe what was happening. Um, you know, um, I, I strayed out of the bush and, um, you know, I mean, that, that was Andretti behind me and, um um, um Gunnar Nielsen in front of me and the works so that was starting to open eyes and that gave me in the drive with Bernie Eccleson's Brethren team
0: It's so amazing isn't it to think here you are what mid-twenties, Cow Angie, country Victoria over the other side of the world and Mario and, uh, and, and Andretti's up your your backside, what was life like as a young Aussie um, I guess off the track as much as anything at that time in your life
2: Well I was still financially struggling, I was living from paycheck to paycheck which was Slim pickings, even though I'd got in there for one, I hadn't got under the big tree of uh, massive money. Uh, yeah, Bernie did pay me, but it was I weren't going to get rich out of it. Uh, and um, I only did the last three races of the season there when the, his one of his drivers left to go to Ferrari, I think it was. And uh, um, but then you know the the, the DNFs was uh, were worrying me. Uh, where, um, you know, I, I could see why we did not DNFs did not finish, and uh, yeah. it was mostly because of some mechanical avoidable issue. And I was determined if I ever you know, had to go racing, I'm going to control it myself. And hence, yeah, you know, many years later in touring cars, I, I why, why I'm so uh, you know hard to get along with because um, you know everything has to be right, otherwise you won't finish the race. And I, I know that better than many.
0: Yeah. So ultimately, Larry, what brought you undone in the end over there when it came to the Formula One?
2: Well, because I, I then struggled to display my skills when the engines blown up and things like that. Uh, the the the, 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 the uh, arena that I was in was starting to be stacked with many a guy with a lot of money in their pockets who wanted to buy my seat up from under me, and the owners uh, was thinking, "Oh, hang on, this LP bloke." Uh, still hasn't won a race, and he it seems, it seems to be blowing up. And that we, maybe we better to grab the money off some of these guys, and, and effectively it left me without a drive because I couldn't bring any commercial money. I don't think racing in Australia then wasn't even on TV, so I, I was unknown anywhere and had no commercial clout. And and the guys who had the money, they you know they had they were still half alright. And uh, Nelson Pico was one of them, for instance. Uh, yeah. A good uh, good friend of mine, and uh, but he had access to uh, great company money uh, based on being a Brazilian and their national, you know, national pride and down there was fantastic. But he was also a good driver, so he got the driver at in the next year, and I wanted it, but uh, yeah, that's life. <laughs>
0: Well, you came back, and the winds did continue back on home soil, but I wanted to ask you about this. In the early 80s, you did something different, didn't you? You and one of your brothers, Gary, constructed, a lot of people will remember this, the Quiet Achiever solar car, and it was known as the world's first practical long-distance solar vehicle, and you helped drive it across the country. What what was the motivation for something like this, Larry?
2: Well, when I did that, I was between, you know, withdrawal symptoms, and, look, I didn't make Formula 1, what Mm. am I doing in Australia? I uh, know I had a conversation with Hans uh, Solstrop, uh It was a friend of mine. He rang me one day and said, "Hey, can we do something with solar power?" I said, "Oh, well, let's make it the vehicle." And uh, could we? And he said, "Could we drive it across Australia?" I said, oh, "Yeah, gives give us a couple." Of... So I thought about it for a couple of days and worked out the power consumption needed and blah blah blah. And I said, "We can easily do We'll average 25 k's now." An and uh, um that's exactly how I started the construction of the team. Got my brother Gary to help me on that. And uh, uh, we got on with it and, um, you know, uh, made um, effectively the world's first solar-powered car, what, 40-odd years ago?
0: Absolutely brilliant. 25 k's an hour average speed, though. That's a slow crossing, load. Did you put a radio in there or something? <laughs>
2: Well, we we're allowed for 25 days and we only took 15, cars. so I say it was a fast crossing. Yeah,
0: that's right. <laughs> nicely done. No, it, it,
2: it was, uh, um, it, it, you know, we're sponsored by BP. We, hands and I, call went in to see BP saying, hey, look, we got a good idea. We can, you know, be mean and green and clean and all those trendy words. And, uh, We asked for a certain amount of money, and VP said, "Yeah, right." And we were out in 15 minutes. And I said, "The hands, I don't think we asked for enough money." So anyway, that's just things I do. As I said much earlier, just you know, bite off always a bit bigger than you can chew, and. um, deal with it.
0: No, that was a great achievement. I remember that was big in the primary schools at the time. Uh, Larry, it certainly struck a chord. Uh, You're with This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can find them online at tobinbrothers.com.au. Next, Larry Perkins sets his sights on Mount Panorama.
1: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
0: Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with Supercars Hall of Famer, Larry Perkins. Larry, it is amazing to think, isn't it? You made your Bathurst debut in 1977 in a Holden LX Tirana hatchback and you finished third. Now, I had to look it up to remind myself of what it looked like it's amazing to look back at these times and these vehicles you were getting around in.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, that was another uh, odd thing to do because I, I had, uh, oh yeah, it was between uh, drive ending the Formula One career was ending, and I got a phone call from an Ian Tate, a Melbourne guy. He was uh, the chief mechanic for Harry first when I worked there, and he knew what I was doing in Europe, and he, he said, "Look, his boss then Peter Jansen." I uh, wanted to know whether um, uh, uh, I'd drive, and uh, you know I respected Ian. And when Ian said the car's going to be good and everything, I jumped at it. I thought, oh, yeah, that'll be all right. So I come out from England, did the race, and lo and behold, uh, i got third. Uh, I got my first taste uh, of of this Bathurst, and then uh, the, the next year, um, I think the next year seventy-eight, I don't think I did it. Actually, I was busy in Europe, still trying to get an fine drive, but. Then '79, uh, I did it again with Jansen, and we got second. And then, then, uh, then we had an engine of the next year. And long story short, we got two seconds and um, a third out of four starts. And uh, uh, I thought this is all pretty good. And that's when uh, Peter uh, Block um, approached me to see if I'd. Uh, drive with him at the, in his show and I said to him, oh, i have not a bit driving. I'm not that to trust about driving, I, uh, I'll run, you. I like, you know, your team looks for a shambles, I, I prefer to run that and that's how that all started. <laughs>
0: well we'll come back to Peter Brock in a moment but when I mention Bathurst, I mean what does Bathurst mean to you Larry, as we said, you'd go on to win the race six times, what sort of emotion does it stir inside you when we talk Bathurst?
2: Well, I used to go to Bathurst as a kid in the '60s. You know, when I was, uh, you know, drive up from the farm, I was uh, eight and a half hour drive, and uh, you know, I knew all about Bathurst, but it was still small fry to me to to my Formula One dreams. But as time went on, and the Formula One dream, you know, evaporated, uh, and I got a taste of this Bathurst from uh, what what surprised me was so many uh, cars had mechanical failure, which I touched on earlier, and. Uh, uh, we had a good crew under Ian Pate and uh, uh, the other helpers, weekend helpers, they were fantastic and and then, you know, yeah, I started to really, really get a taste for it and I got over all my withdrawal symptoms of no Formula 1 and thought, well, hang on, I'm going to, you yeah, know, with the Peter Brock um, contract to run his show for a year and that ended up being three years and, uh, I'm starting to think, well hang on, this is all pretty good and as I say, the Formula 1 had totally evaporated by now and I was really hankering for this Bathurst.
0: What was your relationship like with the late Peter Brock, Larry?
2: Well, I, I knew him from when I went to Melbourne in 1969 with my Formula V. It was Racing was a small world, so I got the him. then. And, yeah. uh, when I was racing in Europe uh, and, and got into Formula 1, he came over a couple of times and stayed at my place and so I got to know him pretty well and uh, uh, when when we went racing he gave me he, uh, Yeah, I said look if I'm going to run it I said I'll run the race team uh, because that's the bit that counts and if you want me to be the go driver all right, well, so we'll do that uh, that wasn't a big deal to me and um, uh, he totally honoured, uh, he let me run it my way and every year he told me what the budget was, every year I give him a budget surplus and didn't spend all the money and and we were winning races, and winning especially Bathurst.
0: What did work for you two side by side? Obviously, Bathurst crowns, 82, 83, 84. I think John Harvey was involved maybe in 83. But what worked? What was the chemistry and the synergy? What made it successful?
2: It was successful because both parties knew their strengths. And I knew Peter's strengths as uh, to the fan base, behind the camera, Raising money, all those, all the things that uh, I'd never experienced before. Uh, and I knew my strength. I wanted to make sure the nuts and bolts are tight, and uh, you know, the, we had the right camshaft and things like that. So, and he never interfered with that. Uh, and uh, so we just had no issues getting along at all. Just, you know, we each knew his space. I didn't want to pinch his, you know, his. Uh, 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 glory in just being head of the team and so on and which sometimes brings teams undone where the second string broke seems to have some uh, jealousy factor or something and that we never experienced any of that and uh, uh, just got on with it
0: So what did bring the union undone then Larry which, which obviously came to fruition in 1985 when you went your separate ways what was the genesis of that?
2: Oh, I was all about this, uh, Peter had, had starting to get back odd in my view and and certainly the team's view uh, with his uh, relationships of uh, uh, doctors and uh, so forth around him and, uh, and believing in this thing called the polarizer. and as soon as that reared its head and uh, I had a meeting with Peter and I reminded him of my contract that I want no one else, if you want to have polarizers on the car, I'm out, that's a breach of contract and he wanted. He agreed that, that he wanted to run and I shook hands and we left. Simple. It was not nothing more. It wasn't lengthy. And it, was, it was in the dark. it was Peter's team, not mine. And he wanted to, um yeah, breach my contract by said he wanted to be able to do things, and uh, I respected that.
0: So you're at peace with it. No regrets over how it played out.
2: No, 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 it's life. It was, it was a great, uh, it was a good opportunity. And I said to my wife, Raleigh, well, I've been saving the money like hell for a couple of years and I wanted to do my own thing and mm. I got a great insight into touring car racing. I understood how all the rules worked properly and you know, I could see um, in those days that only the factory team really had any chance of decent success. And I want to do alter that, so that's why we started my own company called Perkins Engineering.
0: And indeed, as you say, perhaps the best was still to come on the mountain. I just, We just have to talk about, Larry, the Tuohys 1000 of 95. Now, you and Russell Lingle, you go from last, I think it was a flat tyre, maybe even as early as the end of lap one, to first for the Castrol Perkins Racing Team. What are your memories of this uh, day's racing?
2: <laughs> well, I remember it unbelievably well, uh, uh, yeah, well, to 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 start the race, I think I was uh, third on the grid behind uh, Craig Glams, and he got a bit of a dud start, and I got up alongside him, and he moved right, but I was there, and he, his exhaust pipe chomped into my wheel and ripped the tire valve out before the very first corner, and uh, I, I'll never forget that, and I thought, oh my God, no. I had to remind myself many, many times on that very first slow lap, don't go too fast, as we all see it on TV, where the tyre flies off and rips the mud gut off, and the suspension tie, you know, uh, we rehearsed, uh, uh, reminded myself of discipline there and got it back to the pits. The guys made an excellent pit stop, and then we had the loneliest race ever yeah, till we started catching the guys after about lap 80 or 90. And uh, But the crew rose to the occasion. Every pit stop was absolutely record time. Uh, Russell did a fantastic job as well. He never made, you know, none of us made any errors. And, uh, you know, to see that last car, Greenfeet feet and head was with 15 laps to go, the so thing, this is looking real good. And uh, he had, uh, we'd been running our car absolutely flat out. Every gear change was flat out. Every brake was flat out. The whole thing, and Glenn was running on sort of nine tenths because he was worried about the fragility of his car. And when we started catching, we had to go a bit harder, and the engine failed, and uh, that's you know why I controlled all the bits. I said many times in this interview, and uh, but to see that checkered flag after all that, it, it truly, truly was a great day.
0: Oh, I can't. The adrenaline, I can't imagine, and holding your nerve because I think you did. You get the lead inside the last ten laps, didn't you? So holding your nerve over the last handful of laps, uh, I can't imagine the tension.
2: Well, this is what, you've got to to manage it and uh, don't get ahead of yourself. I I kept saying, I always say to me, I'm all winning co-drivers since then, if if you're thinking frivolous thoughts and wanting to wave to the crowd and all that nonsense, you're not concentrating 100% and Mm. give yourself a slap and do it properly. And, uh, yeah, I I adhered to my own advice and uh, obviously Russell did and uh, uh, and it was just, a, you know, it was obviously a fairy tale finish for us and, uh, yeah, a, a memory that the few will get to have. We can come last, be last, and uh, we take it out. So that was
0: 1995. And, it, look, it was a year of tragedy, though, too, wasn't it? I think your great friend, uh, former teammate Greg Hansford, died in a racing accident down at Phillip Island in March of that mm-hmm. year. So, what's that, seven months earlier? I mean... Yeah. You know, not that you'd probably need any reminder, but the the danger of the sport was it was it ever present for you, or just something that you obviously had to had to block out?
2: I uh, it never it, it look it, it's dangerous, it's like, but the danger of You know, when I was a kid, I used to climb windmills, with sixty foot high, and climb out on the. The, the tail, and that was probably more dangerous than car racing. It's only dangerous if you fall off, and uh, car racing is the same, it's only dangerous if you crash, so you've got to minimise all that. So it was just part of the challenge of concentration and preparation, and uh, it was a terrible time in that you know, because Greg drove with me in '93 when we won. We had pole position, the last, the only car to have a holding engine with a uh, holding with a holding engine. Uh we had pole with we the fastest the whole weekend, and we led from start to finish effectively. That was a tremendous and with greg uh, greg uh co driving uh he did a fantastic job but we were pretty poor then and uh, You may see photos on the podium where we both got white jackets on. Only because he, I couldn't afford to buy him his own race shirt. He had one from a previous stint with Alan Moffat, which had all the wrong sponsors, so had to cover that up. So uh, it was hard, Jacker, but yeah. Again, I was with a guy, Greg Hanser, who gave his all, and uh, when he then um, uh, had his terrible crash at Phillip Island at the start of '95, it was it was. yeah, really bad day. And those, those memories don't go away. And, uh, mm. you know, you just think, well, that's life. If you don't say that's life, uh, you know, you've got very few options In
0: We're talking to Larry Perkins on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll be back to wrap up after this and talk Larry's legacy.
1: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
0: It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family owned business since 1934. And Larry Perkins is our guest today. So, Larry, you retired in 2003 at the age of 53. Now, before we get to your legacy, which does run deep, who helped you? I mean, it's a question we don't often ask here. I mean, no one gets to where you got to on your own. When you look back on it all now, who made it possible and who helped you throughout the journey?
2: Oh, at least, uh, well, yeah. again, I said the same. But I'd started with your own personal desire to do what you had to do, which is in one sense a selfish thing. But that's how life is. And uh, the journey of assistance was numerous. Many people uh, helped me out along the way. And, you develop friendships or whatever, and uh, yeah, that pays out uh, in the long run. Um um uh, you know things and as i say to get to europe there was a lot of people help me whether it be the very first drive from bibster or then harry first giving me a drive or my my, my mate uh, the late gary campbell giving me a drive um they're all part of assistance and it went on and on and uh, you know my perkins engineering which is my greatest thing i did i suppose uh employed 60 people and that. Yeah, I recall the first guy to help me there. Uh, uh, one of the guys was a guy called uh, Colin Giltrap, a New Zealand man, Mister Motorsport, Mister Big in New Zealand. And uh, I rang him one day and said, "Look, I need to sell a race car because I need some cash, flow and you need to buy one." And uh, uh, he said, "Yeah, okay, how much?" And he, he said, "All right." So he sent the money straight over, and um, he never wanted to. yeah, you know, I paid, made one payment back, and. Uh, I said during a six-month-old, I think I still owe you about 10 more payments. He said, no, no, I think we're squared on that. And, yeah, you know, that sort of assistance, you can't buy that sort of generosity. You, you somehow have had to have earned it. And, uh, yeah, I had, you know, but then I had very good staff too. I, I can't, uh, the staff I had in those 60 guys, some tremendously loyal people with great skills and worked as a team, you know, for and there's, there's, no, I don't want to be uh, dismissed, but there's just too many there to mention, yeah. uh, uh, but tremendously loyal and uh, trained staff that understood that why, how I wanted to go racing and totally were in sync, and they, they made the Perkins Engineering brand the success that it was.
0: And as I think you might have acknowledged once, Larry, uh, thanks to all those officials you abused over the years as well.
2: Well, that's true. I mean, this year, there's not the slightest doubt I used to abuse officials because the the same officials used to try to ping me if the valve cap was missing on my tyre. And, and things like that when you went to scrutineering. So when, when a rule said that an official must do X, Y, Z, and they don't, I arc up pretty bad, uh, especially as it has a uh, bearing on where you might finish your race. So uh, I think what's good for the girls is good for the gander there. And uh, that's what... But having put, then you put that aside, there's very few officials today that I couldn't have a, a, a very happy uh, beer with or whatever. And yeah. uh, cause it, I do recognise... Uh, as they know I do, that this, you know, you've know got to have officials. It's just that some of them weren't up to speed.
0: <laughs> so, indeed. So, your legacy, obviously, you're inducted into the Supercars Hall of Fame in 2008. We touched on earlier. You've been an accomplished engine builder, automotive engineer. The Larry Perkins Trophy now accompanies the Bow Repairs Melbourne 400. There's the Order of Australia. I mean, it must be really nice, Larry, the career and what you were able to do must sit well with you, well into retirement.
2: Well, it does. And uh, again, I got this Order of Australia thing the other day and, uh, you know, I, I'm sort of living up the farm most of the time now. and uh, But I don't go into town much just because, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't need to be a social butterfly. And, uh, a very nice letter from uh, the secretary lady of the local community it uh expressed sincere appreciation and uh, pride that uh, I won this uh, was awarded this thing and that letter in itself uh it means an awful lot to me just yeah you know, it's probably a bit bigger than the award itself but you know, I've always wanted to do good in the eyes of people who had known uh, Mm. Uh, trust me and so on and and that was you know that was totally unexpected to get that letter but it was fantastic
0: and speaking of legacy your son jack has followed in your footsteps as well hasn't he
2: jack is uh he just loves the car racing you know there's no way he was going to go to school for so long and uh he he runs uh you know elements he does has he you know does uh various uh commentary on races and But he mostly looks after the the historic race cars. In other words, we made 49 race cars and uh, 199 engines, and they're all out there somewhere. And Mm. Jack has a business where he services these items, finds spare parts for them and so on and so on. He loves it. And it keeps him, you know, that's all fantastic, yeah.
0: And before we finish up, Larry, I mean, I think you seemingly turned your hand to archaeology as well. I was reading, what, about three years ago now, you and your brother Peter found that... That equipment that had been left behind in the Simpson Desert by the explorers of the early 1900s, Henry Barclay, Ronald McPherson. They'd, they'd abandoned the load, I think the story goes, and there were camel tanks, tools, scientific equipment, personal belongings, and it was described, I think, as a, a quote-unquote highly significant archaeological find. How did you come across it?
2: Well, that was once I sold the race team and, and moved out, I know I'm never half in or half out. I've always loved the desert and... uh uh, I wanted to travel, and in those travels, I came across individuals and so on. And the conversation turned to, "Well, what have you been doing?" And uh, you know, we've been out looking for Barclay stuff. And uh, I start started. To, uh, it gave great purpose into travelling the desert. Called, Let's look for things. And uh, I researched uh, immensely about Barclay because his diary survived, and uh, mm. he, le- he he left a note uh, of what he left in the. What, his equipment list and the latitude and longitude and there's been many, many searches right? and so I never went within Cooey of uh, uh, the latitude and longitude I did my own homework and went about 120 miles from where he said he left it and drew a circle uh, of five k's big on the map and I said to my brother you're doing nothing come up and give us a hand and uh, uh, and he was happy to, just just to believe me and we got him in four days found all the equipment so amazing um uh, yeah, people uh the academics of the uh, archaeology world still don't understand why i went there but they said well got what happens when you grow up on a farm and you gotta have a can-do attitude <laughs> yeah well, so it's been so, sitting yeah, there so, for
0: 114 years just sitting there
2: yeah over 250 kilos of gear which i collected me and my brother and we went back three back three went back three times to pick it all up and we've donated it in with the museum of Northern Territory and it's sitting in a warehouse still which is regrettable. But yeah, the uh, you you gotta you know, think outside the square and many things and you've got to have this candor attitude and I'll uh, be you know, you sort of half hope you'll find it but you don't really expect you will and uh, to have seen these water tanks sticking out of the camel water tanks sticking out of the sand in you know, with six hundred K from uh Birdsville and uh, Northeast, about 450k from uh, Alice Springs, or the other way around, I should have said. Uh, we we're a long way out, and uh, Peter and my brother said, "Well, why aren't we here? Like, what? Why this little dot?" And I said, "Well, <laughs> just believe me, we are are right." And uh, yeah, so it at, at, uh, it was a big, a daunting thing that, that worked out all right.
0: Jeez, Larry, it's been fascinating to catch up today. We really appreciate your time, and what a life. You have lived and are still living. On the track, you did it so well for such a long period of time. In fact, many people listening would have grown up with the weekend soundtrack of the, uh, the cars screaming around Bathurst and your name was synonymous with all of that. You left an indelible mark on motorsport in this country, it must be said. Well done on all you achieved and thanks very much for joining us.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for the call.
0: And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power
1: to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.